Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 85. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 12 through 15 in the second book of Kings and follow with a consideration of small moves and their potential for tremendous impact. Previously on TanakhCast. Yoash, the rightful heir who had been hidden away for seven years to survive a murder purge, had been installed as king of Judah by his uncle, the priest Jehoiada. Contrary to the previous slew of kings in the north and in the south, Yoash, quote, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, as Jehoiada the priest had taught him. Which means that his 40-year reign, we hope, will be a good one, and good things will happen. And one is tempted to think that what comes next is a good thing. Young Yoash ordering the priest to reallocate all the donations to the temple for temple repair. But this means that the money flowing into the temple and there is a lot, is no longer under the priest's discretion. This is clearly an attempt by Yoash to break free of the influence of his uncle Yehoiada, and in the ensuing power struggle, monies are bundled, set aside, and locked in chests, but no repairs are undertaken until a compromise is reached, and Yoash agrees to appropriate money offered as guilt offerings to the priests directly, but everything else would go to temple upkeep. And the next thing is not that good either. Hazael, king of Aram, attacks and intends to lay siege to Jerusalem, and Yoash basically empties out the royal treasury and hands over all the consecrated things as ransom payment, which saves the city and Judah, but encourages a cabal of officials to rise up and assassinate Yoash. Which prompts me to wonder about the good with God dividend and when that will start to kick in. Maybe Yoash's son. Meanwhile in Israel, the idolatrous, immoral Israel, well, not actually meanwhile, but more like 17 years before, Hazael attacks Israel and subjugates the people, and in a style reminiscent to the book of Judges, the people cry out to God for a savior, who comes in the form of an anonymous rescuer, and quote, they came out from under the hand of Aram, and the Israelites swelled in their tents as in former days. But the kings in Israel are still wicked, and yet there is still a grudging respect and acknowledgement of Elisha as a man of God, because when, in chapter 13, Elisha lays on his deathbed, Yehoash, the king of Israel, comes to see him. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen, the king cries out. We heard this before when Elisha called it out to Eliyahu. Elisha instructs the king in an elaborate archery ritual, all of which to say that Israel will strike back at Aram but not defeat them, which I guess is good, but it's happening to the wrong kingdom. And then Elisha dies, and the king of Israel has him buried. And sometime later, when Israel's army is mustered to fend off a raid by the Moabites, a cadre of Israelites are hastily burying one of their dead in Elisha's tomb before heading off to fight. When the flung body comes into contact with Elisha's remains, the body comes back to life. <laughs> Damn, Daniel. Aram and Israel eventually fight, and as Elisha predicted, Israel repels the attacks but does not prevail. Amatsia takes over from his assassinated father Yoash. He too is good and does what is right in the eyes of God, but he doesn't dismantle the high places where the people continue to near offer to other gods. And he has the plotters against his father killed, but only the plotters, not their kids, because Amatsia has morals. But then, after pacifying his frontiers, Amatsia sends a message to Yehoash, king of Israel, and they exchange some words and some metaphors and some similes. And Yehoash concludes with, Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? 
And then he proceeds to kick Amatsia's ass, destroy the Wall of Jerusalem, sack the temple treasury, and take scores of hostages back to the north. Yehoash eventually dies and is replaced by Yeravam II. Amatsia either escapes or is released, but he, like his father, is also assassinated. Azaria takes over. Chapter 15 recounts more kings, more assassination plots, wars and despoilation, bribes and conspiracies, you know, fun stuff. Here's a quick recap. Yeravam II rules in Israel, Azariah is in Judah. Zechariah takes over in Israel for Yeravam II until his assassination. There is a brief period of turmoil in the palace until Menachem succeeds in seizing power and keeping it, until his natural death when Bekachia, his son, takes over. Meanwhile, in Judah, Azariah comes down with leprosy and is locked in a tower until his death. Yotam, his son, takes over. Pekachia is murdered by Pekach, who assumes the throne until he is murdered during the reign of Yotam in Judah. Yoram is considered a righteous king. He rebuilds the upper gate of the temple and reigns successfully until his death of natural causes, and his son Ahaz takes over. Whew. And with that, endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. This episode is going to get a little in the weedsy. I want to talk a little bit about policy and change and how the small things, the small decisions, the small moves, the minor policy often has more impact than sweeping gestures or rousing speeches or grand declarations. So I want to begin with a little known aspect of how the law works. And there are all kinds of names for this, plaintiff shopping, plaintiff grooming. I think the official term is deliberate plaintiff selection. And there was a whole podcast dedicated to this little-known trick, lever, tool, whatever you want to call it, by the guys from Radiolab. The podcast is called More Perfect, and it's the episode called Imperfect Plaintiffs. I'll put a link up to it on thenextjew.com. And they did a much better job telling the story than I possibly can do here, but TLDR, here's a shorter, dirtier version. Lawyers and activists look to do through the courts what they can rarely do through the legislative branch. They can get what they perceive as bad laws, democratically passed bad laws, struck down in the courts. And the way that these lawyers and activists try to do this is not through rousing speeches or marches or grand gestures. They look to do it in a small way, an almost insignificant way, by finding the perfect plaintiff, the poster boy or girl for their cause, the certain someone that will make the abstract cause concrete and real, make it personal, make it something we can all get behind. But sometimes the finding takes too long. Sometimes the perfect plaintiff is made. So it's 1890, it's been a generation and a half since the end of the American Civil War and the emancipation of America's black slaves, but the racism and discrimination continues, as evidenced by a Louisiana state law passed by the Senate by a vote of 23 to 6, called the Separate Car Act. The law requires separate accommodations for blacks and whites on railroads. And we're not talking about separate sections, we're talking about separate railway cars, hence the name of the act. Well... Folks were not going to take this law lying down, even if it had been passed by three-quarters majority. They decided to challenge the law. In 1891, they got together in New Orleans and organized a group called Citizens Committee to test the constitutionality of the separate car law. I guess their goal wasn't really supposed to be a secret. Their first attempt to get the law quashed failed. But the second attempt, ah... That would stick, because they found an unlikely ally in their struggle for civil rights. The railroad companies, who were against the law because it would require them to run trains with twice as many cars to accommodate the Separate Car Act. So the Citizens Committee found Homer Plessy. 
Plessy was a shoemaker and an insurance collector, but he was also a French-speaking Creole. He was, according to Louisiana state law, an octoroon, meaning he was classified as one-eighth black, even though he was very fair-skinned. The plan was for him to buy a first-class ticket from New Orleans to Covington, Louisiana, and board in the white carriage. Meanwhile, the conductor who had been tipped off about, about Plessy's racial background would confront Plessy and have him removed by a detective who had been hired by the railroad company who had authority to arrest. And he would have Plessy taken off the train and charged, not with some misdemeanor, but with violating the separate car act. To make a long story short, the case worked its way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, where the Louisiana law was eventually struck down, as well as the doctrine of separate but equal, which had been a linchpin for racial segregation. These activists could have organized mass marches, sit-ins, letter-writing campaigns, petitions, get out the vote initiatives, rallies, speeches, even rioted. But even though they were on the right side of history, they would have failed. But by picking the right plaintiff and slowly working their way through the halls of justice, activists overturned a law they could never have overturned democratically. A big change happened through a small move, an often wonky in-the-weeds policy shift move. Sometimes that's enough, and sometimes it's another small move, and then another, and eventually change. So what does this have to do with Yoash? Well, that's a fair question. Uh, I want to look at one specific moment in this week's portion from the perspective of the small move, Yoash's order to reallocate temple funds. Yoash came to power after some serious plotting and scheming. He survived a purge by his grandmother, uh, and it was kept hidden for six years. Only when his uncle, the priest Jehoiada, brought him out of hiding and spirited him to the temple for public coronation did he assume his rightful place in the throne. But young Yoash was in thrall to his uncle. Jehoiada the priest was the king's regent, the real source of power in Judah, the real decision maker. Although his name does not appear as part of the Tzedekite dynasty, which means he probably was not a high priest, Jehoiada still had schlep with the priestly class, a not insignificant sector of Judahite society that wielded a lot of influence and power. They ran the temple. They were God's functionaries. So, for many years, until Yoash reached a mature age, Jehoiada would lead the priests and the nation, which begs the question, when will Jehoiada step aside and let Yoash rule for himself? And would that stepping aside transition of power happen peacefully? Could Yoash maneuver Jehoiada out of power without a confrontation with the priests and potentially God himself? Yoash was the first king in Judah who was a descendant of both David and Omri, the king of Israel. When he finally recaptured the throne, he renewed the covenant between God, the king, and the nation, and attacked the Baal cult. And he also wanted to make the temple great again. But how to do this with Jehoiada the priest running the temple and the kingdom? Yoash needed to find himself a small move. A small, wonky policy move. It's not clear from the chronology when Yoash made this small move, but he was clearly not a lad of eight or nine when he did it. But he was old enough when he declared to the Kohanim that all the money offered as holy donation to the temple should be reallocated to temple repairs. The temple had numerous sources of income. There were the monies regularly pledged to the temple, the half-shekel admission, as well as heart money, money folks would give of their own free will. The priests, the Kohanim, sat on a vast treasury, and Jehoiada was their boss. So when Yoash makes this announcement, it's a bit of a no-brainer. The Kohanim are in charge of the temple. The temple needs some repairs, so money coming into the temple should be reallocated directly to the repairs. But this small move 
had bigger ramifications. It would take the power to allocate money out of the hands of the Kohanim and into the hands of the king. If Justice John Marshall's adage of to tax is to destroy is true, then the power to allocate money is the power to create. And that had been in the hands of the Kohanim. And now it would put the Kohanim under the king's authority and not the other way around as it had been for years. So this order is ignored for something like 23 years. I guess Yoash finally felt resolute enough and strong enough to confront Jehoiada. And you can't see the air quotes, but again, this confrontation is not a real confrontation. Yoash is not coming out and saying to his uncle, the regent, hey, why are you still holding on to power? Step aside. And oh, on top of that, I'm going to take your power as leader of the Kohen class as well. In other words, Shuck on it, Trebek. Yoash is couching this small move differently. He says to his uncle, why aren't you repairing the temple? Isn't that like your thing, your place of business? How could you let things slip like that? So the Kohanim go on strike. They won't accept any more money from anyone. So the money won't go into the king's temple repair fund, but Jehoiada realizes that he's taken things too far. The Kohanim are not listening to him. And because the temple is an essential service, and if the people are denied it, they won't get angry at Yoash for trying to grab the Kohanim's power. They'll get mad at the frontline workers, the Kohanim, for not accepting their donations. So how is the matter resolved? Jehoiada crafts a compromise. He convinces the king to accept a partial reallocation. Some of the money that comes in will go to the king's pet project, temple renovation, which will be a win for him. And the remainder will flow to the Kohanim, a win for the Kohanim. And though Jehoiada is the architect of the solution, he is the loser because Yoash not only got what he wanted, credit for the temple reno, but has effectively exerted his independence from Jehoiada. And the Kohanim have happily returned to their traditional role, even though it is a reduced one. But the role at Yehoiada, the one he had so skillfully carved out for himself as influential priest and regent, has been made redundant. At least he doesn't end up dead. That's good, isn't it? If no one dying is your standard, then chalk this one up as a win too. Incidentally, in 2001, an artifact was discovered on a construction site near the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. A black stone tablet had been unearthed with the following 15-line inscription on it. I am Yehoash, son of Ahaziahu, king over Judah, and I executed the repairs. When men's hearts became replete with generosity in the densely populated land and in the sparsely populated steppe, and in all the cities of Judah to donate money for the sacred contributions abundantly in order to purchase quarry stone and juniper wood and Edomite copper, copper from the city of Adam, and in order to perform the work faithfully. Then I renovated the breaches of the temple and of the surrounding walls and the storied structure and the meshwork and the winding stairs and the recesses and the doors. May this inscribed stone become this day a witness that the work has succeeded and may God thus ordain his people with a blessing. The Israeli archaeological authorities ran extensive tests on the tablet. Their report documents various mistakes in the spelling and a mixture of different alphabets. The stone was also suspect. It was typical of western Cyprus and areas further west, not Judah. Patina over the chisel letters was different from that on the back of the stone and could easily be wiped away. They concluded that the tablet was a forgery. <laughs>
But in mid-2013, after a Jerusalem district court judge ruled that the state had failed to definitively prove the artifact was a forgery, the state applied to the Supreme Court to compel the owner of the artifact, Oded Golan, to consign it to the state without payment, as the Antiquities Law of the State of Israel in 1978 dictates that when an antiquity is discovered or found in Israel, it becomes the property of the state. Did you follow that dick move? First, the state says the Yoash inscription is a forgery and tries to prosecute its owner. And then it says, well, it's not really a forgery, or maybe it's sort of, maybe, no, it's not. But in the case that it's not, and it's actually real, sorry, not sorry, we'll take it now because all antiquities belong to us anyway. In the end, the Supreme Court ruled against the Israel Antiquities Authority, returning the tablet and even the more famous James Ossuary to Golan, who intends to publicly display both. Well, at least he didn't end up dead. That's good, isn't it? For me, the fascinating thing about the story is the clash between the judges and the scholars. Another small move, I guess. The former, working with their legal rules and their burdens of proof, declare the tablet to be not fake. But the scholars, working with their understanding of philology, archaeology, and their own notions of validity, declare it not real. In the end, small moves did not save the integrity of the Yoash inscription but it might make Oded Golan some money, so it's not a total loss. At least no one died. We'll leave all the dying for the next episode. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast, or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 86, when we continue the second book of Kings with chapters 16 through 19.